Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. I think we're on page six, is that correct? A lot of pieces of the puzzle... But we'll, 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 we'll summarize it at the end. Just kind of follow along as best as you can. And um, we'll try to show you all the phases of this last Gentile empire so we understand where we're at and what's next. You remember where I started at. I stopped at. I need to start at 8. Okay, verse 8 on page 6, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. So he's talking about the beasts that he saw, the four beasts. And he talked about how different the last beast was and that it had ten horns. Okay. And he says this, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Okay. So obviously... It's uh, the little horn is not the little horn of of the, the Daniel uh, eight, chapter eight. This is a new little horn. But notice where he's coming up from, from among the ten, right? So what it's telling you is that ten league confederation or nation will be in existence before the Antichrist rises out of that system. He comes from that system, not outside the system. He's within the system, and notice he's a little one. And the fact that he it shows you his prominence and power starts growing. He grows. He's little at first, and then he becomes a horn. So his power is growing within the system, is what it's trying to say. And then it says that uh, before whom the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. We'll talk about that a little bit later as we get into um, the tribulation. But what it's st- stating is in that Tinley confederation, he will eventually assume power over that. And he will take out three kings that oppose him, or three horns that oppose him. He will take them out, the other seven will submit. Therefore, it makes him an eighth. Okay, so, so if that makes sense, it's the, the horns are connected to the ten toes. Uh, that phase of the uh, we call revived Roman Empire, but let's call it imperialism. And so he comes out of that last phase. He, in essence, is the last phase, which is called the Beast Empire. So what we should be looking for eventually is a, a one-world government, and what we'll see from the next text, he's going to explain it, a one-world government will then break up into ten leagues. And then out of those ten leagues, the Antichrist will come out, take three down, seven will submit, he becomes an eighth, and he rules that until Jesus comes back. Now, in this passage, he doesn't mention a phase, and there's one more phase I want to introduce to you, but he's introducing phases of this revived Roman Empire. So that's a little bit about that. We'll talk more extensively in just a bit about that. Let's continue on. And there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. The eyes like the eyes of a man means he has human characteristics. It's a man, it's an individual, and he has human characteristics. 
Interesting. Very interesting. Why would it say that? He has human characteristics. Hmm. He may not be human. What do you mean? He might be half human. What do you mean? I want you to go to Genesis chapter 3. I want us to explore that. The seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. It's not only singular, but it's plural. Who's the seed of the woman, obviously? Messiah. Moses is trying to hint to you about the seed of the Messiah that his birth is different. His birth is different. You would say seed of a man. Normally. But Moses is trying to show you he's from the seed of a woman. He doesn't have an earthly father. He's going to be, he's hinting at a virgin birth. Isaiah will, will, will obviously pick up on that and say the virgin will be with child and it's the Messiah. Okay, so it's a miraculous birth, but notice what it says. The seed of Satan? Yeah, maybe. There's something going on in the text. So if I combine that with some other things about Genesis 6, Nephilim, what did they do? Okay. And then I go in through the precedent that when you see Antichrist, he copies everything Jesus does. Everything. Even down to a resurrection. He is Antichrist instead of Christ or a substitute for Christ. He copies and mimics Christ. He has a he has a paraclete, the false prophet. He has a father. His father is Satan. You have the satanic trinity. You see the hints in Scripture? There's something going on bigger than what you and I have been normally taught. There's hints in Scripture that he's not fully human. This is Satan himself cohabiting with a woman. If we believe Genesis 6 is literal, and you take it for what it says, because the Sephite view doesn't work. You try to play that out, the Sephite view doesn't work. The, the other view of that, I know Henry Morris, and I respect Henry Morris, the fact that they were demon-possessed men uh, going on to, to women and producing offspring, that doesn't work either because of the monstrosities that were created. I've seen demon-possessed people, and they have families, and they don't produce monstrosities today. Why did the monstrosities get created? Why did the genetic code get fouled up to where Noah's flood was needed? Well, Genesis 6. The only, the only view that works is these fallen angels left their estate, according to Jude, and went after strange flesh, just like the Sodomites did, according to Jude. He, he relates what these angels did with what the Sodomites did. The Sodomites went after strange flesh, homosexuality. The angels that left their estate went after strange flesh and went after human flesh. And sons of God, there's always, they're all male angels. There's no female angels. So they went to, to, to women and cohabitated, produced Nephilim, and was part of the problem of the Genesis Flood. If that's the case, and you have Genesis chapter 3, the seed of Satan, and then I have this passage says, he looks, the idea of the eyes of a man is he has human characteristics. 
You start putting this together and all of a sudden you have a picture of a very grotesque individual. That this, this, this is not a fully human being. He's a Nephilim. Again, can, I don't have a, a scripture that I can point to of saying, yes, he will be a Nephilim. I understand that, but again, I'm doing an inductive study. I'm taking all the pieces and I'm putting them together to give me a conclusion. And the conclusion I think I reach is, I don't think he's fully, fully human. You may disagree with me, and that's fine. I don't, I, that's, there's no doubt you know he's satanic. He's inspired by Satan. But something's going on here that more, that's more than meets the eye. And I don't know how, how to explain it other than I don't think he's fully human. I think he's half human. He has a human mom, but I think his father is Satan. He is the son of Satan. He is the seed of Satan. He is the son of perdition. It, it's it's it, it just leaves it out there, man. It, it, it's just it's not conclusive with the Hebrew, so you have to derive it from the context. And then, so you add that, and then you find out this passage. You marry it some other passages. What's this resurrection that he has? He's in the bottomless pit, and he comes back out of it. What, what's what's happening here? Because the, the only demons are sent to the bottomless pit. And so you start adding that up because humans go to Hades that are unregenerate, but they don't go to the bottomless pit. The pit is reserved for demons. And then Tartarus are reserved for demons that are permanently bound who did Genesis 6. So at that point, you're starting to add things up and you do, again, inductive, and with piece by piece by piece, then I'm left with whatever conclusion I end up with. Now again, I might be totally wrong on my conclusion, but I'm not the only one stating this. Your guy who's writing this book states it. A lot of guys from Dallas Theological Seminary state that. A lot of guys I know state that. And so that's what ends up happening is if you take this literally and you do the inductiveness, there's something going on here that maybe we don't have a full grasp on. And I don't know. We won't be here for that. But you could obviously see Satan's master plan. And obviously, I mean, you have to extrapolate a lot of things into that, that God would allow this to happen. There's no doubt he's allowing a lot of evil to happen in the tribulation that he's allowing. He allows demons to roam freely and people visibly see them. He's allowing that. So it's not out of the question that he would allow this in the tribulation when he's allowing so much other things to, to happen in the tribulation. I think so the precedent's already there for tribulation. The tribulation is not a normal course of events, obviously. It's not like it is today. This is in the, great, the church age in this grace. Tribulation is a totally different time period where you have this blending of supernatural and the natural coming together in a seven-year period where... The waters are turning to blood, man. It's a very different time. And, and if that's the case, then you have to work off of that precedent of the tribulation. That it is a different time. It's not the church age, and therefore, you start laying the groundwork. Now again, you don't have to believe that, but you do your study, and you come up with what you think the Antichrist is. He's definitely pure evil, man. This guy's completely satanically controlled and possessed by Satan. But is, is he more than a man? I'll leave that question for your own study. I seem to think, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, I seem to think he's more than a man. I think he's Nephilim. With some of these clues in the scriptures, I get. 
Yeah, and it's the number of a man. And so, you know, maybe in that sense, I, you know, it, it's, he has the appearance of a man. It's, this is why he says he has the eyes of a man. Um, but is Daniel hinting at something else? That, why would Daniel say he, he appears to be like a man? He has the appearance of a man. And that's just kind of a weird statement. If he was a man, my thing would be, and this is my conjecture, why, do you, why would you even have to state it? Because if he's a man, then you would assume he's a man, but he says he has the appearance of a man. Huh. Again, if you go work off precedent, if you go off uh, of uh, typology, Nimrod was a Nephilim. The first Antichrist figure was a Nephilim. And, and with the Tower of Babel, so you, you have the first Antichrist type of person already being half, half angelic and half human at that point in time. Anyway, when you see archaeological release of, of uh, Nimrod, in his depiction, he's always bigger, a lot bigger, than the rest of people. A lot bigger in the archaeological remains of Nimrod. So there, maybe they were, he was bigger. It says he was a mighty hunter, and that's, that he was a hunter of men. He, he, there was something different about this guy, uh, Nimrod. So I don't know. Something's different. Fully satanic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's that very well could because then it, it, the, you got to remember Satan's a copycat and he, he's copying the satanic trinity because the false prophet plays the role of the Holy Spirit. And um, the fact that this guy can do supernatural things, um, the false prophet can do supernatural things, I mean, they, they have power, obviously. There's something going on here than just a mere human being. That's, uh, that's chapter 8, and it's referring to um, the Grecian Empire. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the first horn, I mean, or sorry, this horn is, unre is unrelated in the sense that there's a different horn in chapter 8. That horn, that horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, who does something, typology, similar to the Antichrist when he desecrates the temple. But Antiochus never made a covenant with Israel. Nor did Antiochus ever proclaim to be God. He, he desecrated their temple and things, and he made them worship, and he stopped the sacrificing and things like that. So he's a typology that points to someone some, something further ahead. So that's why Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, says to the disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation, he points to the future. He could have easily corrected them and said, no, no, the abomination happened in, in, in Antiochus Epiphany's day, and he didn't. He said, no, no, something's happening further. Another desecration is coming. So, um, they're unrelated, but they're related in typology, if that makes sense. You don't want to confuse the same horns together. They do different things. Um, okay. Uh, what do we got? Verse 9. Let's finish this off, and then we'll take a break. I watched till thrones were put in place. The Hebrew, the English is not bringing that out. It should be put down. I watched till thrones were put down. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. Talking about the Father, okay? 
His throne was a fiery flame, referring to judgment. He's about to judge now. Its wheels, a burning fire. Remember the Ezekiel's wheels? The throne has wheels on it, a wheel within a wheel. Fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. When you see that, whether it's in, in the New Testament or Old, Old Testament, it means innumerable. They didn't have a number for that. It just means innumerable. So they couldn't even count how many angels there were. Um, the judgment was set and the books were opened. What books? The books for the judgment of this empire, the Antichrist's empire. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. He's speaking against God. He's blaspheming against God. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Now, encapsulated in that is the whole end for the Antichrist. But let me explain this in just a second. There's other passages that talk about his actual death. Jesus kills him. Uh, when Jesus comes back at, at Basra, his, the Antichrist armies are surrounding Basra or Petra. Jesus kills him, and as he's dead on the ground, his troops run over his body, trample his body. Then, according to Isaiah, his soul is taken into Sheol, or Hades, the, the, the Hades compartment. And they mock him in Isaiah 4 of, is this the man who made the nations tremble? They mock him. They're saying, this is the most powerful man on the face of the planet, and yet you're with us, is they're mocking him. So he goes into Hades. His soul is in the Hades. His body is trampled on by his armies. Then he is resurrected in the 75-day interval, and him and the false prophet are resurrected and thrown into the lake of fire even before the millennial starts. So he, him and the false prophet, the first inhabitants of the lake of fire, wherever that might be, we're not sure where that's at. That's different than Sheol. And they stay in there for a thousand years before anyone else goes in there. So Daniel's encapsulating this, but you have to bring other prophecies into this. And we'll show that when that, that time comes of how he's killed and all that takes place. As for the rest of the beasts... They had their dominion taken away. And this is interesting. So their kingdoms were taken away, but yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the influence of, of the Babylonians, Medo-Persians, and Greece continues to live in this fourth empire and is still with us today. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but that is explained in Revelation chapter 13 in just a bit. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice that is the phrase that Jesus used when they asked him in the trial, are you the Son of the Most High? And he said, what? Yes, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Reference to Daniel 7, and we'll look what it says. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language, languages uh, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. So when he quoted that, they knew exactly what he was saying. 
The Son of Man, they knew, was the Messiah. They obviously knew, because He could approach the Ancient of Days and come from Heaven, that there's the, the Messiah, or the Son of Man, is also deity as well. See, they knew this. They knew very early on that the Messiah is going to be God. But their interpretation continued to downplay this. And you can see, obviously... The Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days. No one can approach the Ancient of Days. I mean, Isaiah said I was, I, he almost came, came apart at a vision of God. But yet this one is approaching the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is handing all authority of the Father to the Son of Man. This is not just a mere human being. He is saying that the Messiah is not only a man, but he is God in Daniel chapter 7. See, the Jews always knew a plurality in the Godhead. They always knew it, and they suppressed it. They didn't want to... They didn't th uh, the, the, the initial thought was, we, well, we want to be like the pagans who worship multiple gods. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, and the Hebrew is echad, which means a composite unity. They knew the Memra, or the, what we call the Logos, was God too, and they suppressed it. And they kept suppressing it. And over and over again, it was saying, you, you would have certain passages that even talk about uh, all three persons in one passage in the Old Testament. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amazing. So, with that being said, let's go to page, and I'll show you a synopsis of what you just read. Go to page, and then we'll take a break. Page 9. Page 9, if you go into the middle of the page, it'll say why in the chart form, uh, uh, form the information found in chapter 7 could be viewed as follows. Do you have that? I want you to go down there. He talked about the Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persia, Hellenistic Empire, and a united stage, which was Alexander the Great, four divisions when they, the four generals took over, and now he talks about the fourth empire. Now here's what we saw except one stage. We saw the Fourth Empire, which is imperialism, or Rome. The United States is Rome. Then he showed us a one-world... Well, sorry, he skipped that. I'm going to show you in just a second from another passage when he explains it. Um, there's a one-world government stage. We talked about a ten-division stage, and then we talked about an antichrist stage, and then we talked about a messianic kingdom that we just read. I want to show you, letter B, the one-world government stage. If you'll turn to page... Eight. I want to read. This is Daniel's interpretation of, of, of what that vision was. And I want you to see the insertion of a new stage that has been introduced, which I just pointed out to you. Let's read the whole passage. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the vision of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, obviously an angel, and asked him, uh, the truth of all this. So he told me and made, and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Notice that the first time he saw the vision, the vision um, um, arise out of the, the great sea, meaning that they're Gentiles. But what does it mean when they arise from the earth? They're human governments. Anything from the earth means they're human. Again, remember, Moses set the precedent. What's how was Adam made? By the earth. So anytime you see a reference to earth, or they're from the earth, it means they're human. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, when, um, even forever and forever. So, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. Now, the idea we talked about last week of imperialism being different than any other form of government before then, in the fact that it controls a nation from outside of it by its own people, like Pontius Pilate, Festus, Felix in the, in the New Testament as you, that you saw. But one more thing about imperialism I want to bring out to you. Notice that Rome, or imperialism, is marked by iron, one of the hardest metals. The Roman soldiers carried iron on them for their protection. So the iron makes perfect sense. Okay, but it's trying to tell you something about them and that it smashes to pieces and it tramples the residue under their feet. It totally crushes other nations and empires. Okay, this is a good application. Imperialism means they do not do nation building once they destroy you. They pulverize you, and they don't care if your nation doesn't rebuild. They don't want you to rebuild. They want to destroy you completely. And if you survive, that's on you. But it's not because they're going to go to war, and we're going to after we we decimate you, we're going to help you rebuild your your uh, your country, like we did to, to Japan. We did a nation building after we destroyed Japan, right? That's not imperialism. Imperialism, I'm going to destroy you and pulverize you, and you'll never be built again. Now, wait a second. You've already mentioned, Brandon, it's, it's tough enough to have the UN come over here and give us rules that we don't want to do, that we've never voted for. But you're now saying imperialism is also not into nation building? No, they're into destroying nations. Then what does all these individual nations have waiting for them. Destruction. The UN, or the imperialism of Rome that's rising, their goal is not to build up nations. Their goal is to destroy them. The UN wants nothing more than to destroy the United States, or Canada, or anything. That's exactly what happened in the Middle East right now. Yep. I'm, I'm reading this, Larry, and it's like I'm. I, my mouth is open, man. And I'm seeing it right in front of me. They are not interested in nation building or trying to get. They're trying to pulverize these people and these nations. You're seeing the rise of imperialism now. It's taking over. I have our own men, and I'm destroying you. And we're seeing it right play right in front of our eyes. So I, I'm, it's, I, I read the newspaper and I'm thinking, that's prophecy. Rome is here. She's with us right now. It, it's it's mind boggling. I don't know. Most Christians are out to lunch on this because they're watching Dancing with the Stars. But I hope <laughs> you're you're seeing this and you should be saying, "Wow! Just as God said would happen is happening right in front of my very face." Thank you.
Yeah. Like the Ottoman Empire is his is his conjecture. <clears throat> well, I think what what we're going to start to find out is a better term. We, we I think the colloquial is revived Rome. I think that everyone understands that. But what the the what Daniel's trying to show you, and this is why he can't describe the beast, and this is why in Revelation 13, when he does, when John starts describing the beast, he says it has parts from the other empires in it. He says, I can't, I can't describe it because it's what, what John and Daniel are trying to say is this is not just one nation. This thing is different because it includes all nations. This is worldwide. This is what made John so sick. Because it's one thing if you're just talking about the Babylonians or talking about Medo-Persia or you're talking about Greece. That's just one nation. But John is implying, and, and sorry, uh, Daniel's implying that this thing goes global, which is so different than anything has ever been in history. There has never been a global empire. And he says, that's what made me sick. And he says, that's why Messiah is going to have to come back and destroy this thing, because it'll be so monolithic, nothing human could destroy this thing. And so I want to introduce that. So that's why I would say it's, it's bigger than just Rome in, in the, uh, the, the uh, Fertile Crescent or the Mediterranean. This thing goes global. So what Daniel's trying to do is show you it starts with Roman imperialism, but the is issue is imperialism, and it goes into phases. And in these phases, broaden it out to where you have two legs, east and west, ten toes, globalism, but he introduces globalism right in this passage. So I want to show you that, and then, then, then hopefully it will answer this question. So watch this. He talks about the Antichrist. Watch this. Uh, verse 20, and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before it, which uh, three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, obviously the Antichrist, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Something different is about this guy. He's different than the fellows he runs around with. Again, another hint that something's not right with this guy. I was watching... And the same horn was making war against the saints. Obviously, that's Israel at that point in time, and any Gentile that believes along with that, and prevailing against them. Uh, Two-thirds of them, by the way, according to Zechariah. Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Wait a second. The Ancient of Days comes and takes care of this? But I saw the Son of Man approach the Ancient of Days. What did he just call Messiah? He's God. The same term that was used for the Father is now used for the Messiah, because we know it's the Messiah who comes back. Again, Daniel is showing the Jews and everyone else, Jesus is God. He's not simply just a human being. He's 100% human and 100% God. He is also called Ancient of Days. Because he's the one who's doing this. Um... And then he goes, uh, verse 23, Thus he said, watch this, 
The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. We talked about the differences. Now underline this. And shall devour the whole earth. He has now introduced to you the world government stage. There it is. That is the, the, the basically the third stage of this fourth empire. You have the unified with Rome, then you have the two legs of Rome, and then he is saying it goes worldwide. It's totally unified. Now watch this. Trample it and break it into pieces. Then notice another stage is introduced. The ten horn stage. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. Obviously, talking about the Antichrist. There's the stages. So what he's telling you is before the ten-stage confederation, the world will go into a one-world government. That's where we get the term from. It's right in this passage, right here. So it doesn't last long, and it breaks into ten confederations that control the entire globe. So you go from global uh, government to a ten-league global government, and there will be ten kings simultaneously that will rule over that government. That, folks, is what goes into the tribulation, is the ten-league confederation. So, guess what I'm, where I'm going with this? If the one-world government has to happen before the ten-league confederation, because that's what's in the tribulation, what do you think perhaps we might see? You might see, if we don't get raptured, the development of a one-world government right in front of your very eyes. Because it won't, we don't know when it breaks up into ten leagues. Maybe it breaks up into ten leagues after rapture. I don't know. But that's what starts. It's not in a one-world government form going into the tribulation. So what you should expect to see in your prophetic scenario is this constant moving towards globalism. And so, and that's, that's the point we're, we're seeing is national sovereignty is going from nation states. Borders are going. Uh, the things that define a nation state, language, culture, borders, are gone now. In fact, they don't want those things anymore, Republican or Democrat. They don't want borders anymore. They want an international community. And so the whole mindset of the whole world is geared up for this. And, and so, to have a one-world government, they'll be begging for it. How so? How do you think they'll beg for it? Give me maybe two reasons why. What's the first one you think they would beg for a one-world government? Peace. I want security. I want these guys taken care of in the Middle East. I don't want them beheading any people. And that's the general sentiment of the, around the world. They're going to get so fed up, they're going to say, well, we need a solution. And America's not going to get involved. They're going to say, well, we need to turn to an international community that can manage it. That's right. If people like America are not going to stand up and these other nation states are not going to stand up, we've got to take control. And what's happening is a power vacuum is being created right now. And the world will, be the world will beg for it. And they'll beg for it so much and say, well, we'll give you what you want. And then we'll, we'll introduce a one world government. The second thing is economy. If economies are tanking, people will say, I want control of the economy. We've got to get this thing under control. We cannot have politicians just running the deficit up and up and up and killing our economy. We've got to get control of this. They'll beg for it. They'll beg for security. They'll beg for economics. 
And you think about this. Business books, hold on, I got loopy and then I'll come back to you. Business books were written 10 years ago. I was reading business books. And the guys in business, these are not even, these are secular guys from Wall Street, were saying the American people will one day be willing to give up their freedoms for security. And that was 15 years ago I was reading that stuff. And today, that's exactly where this world's going to. I want security. I want security. Hackers. IDs being taken. Your bank accounts being emptied. Whatever it is. Well, sure. I mean, you, you have those Middle East blow-ups like that. With Gog and Magog and Psalm 83, they're going to say, wait a second, this thing's out of control. Because what what is over there that everyone cares about? You think they care about the Jews? Oil. It's in the sand, man. That's where it's at. Like I told you, that one book, you've got to get this book. by uh, John Walbert, uh, I think it's Oil Armageddon in the Middle East. I mean, it, here's the Prince of Prophecy from Dallas Theological Seminary telling you, from a secular standpoint, this is all about oil. And if you don't get that down, you won't understand from a secular standpoint what the need is for. That's the, the, the mitigating issue of why people are so interested in that place is because of oil. Yeah, he's, he's basically um, trying to summarize it, but then he's adding details, if that makes sense. It's um, it's what I said at, at like the first class where um, they will do a schematic first, repeat the schematic, but then add details to it. That's that's classic Hebrewism, and the detail he adds, which was we didn't see this in Daniel chapter two or the first part of Daniel seven. The detail he's adding for us is, whoa. There's a worldwide government stage here that just got introduced before a tin league and before the Antichrist stage. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I sit in front of the TV at night because I'm a news junkie and I'm watching this stuff till like one in the morning. And I'm sitting there and I said, hey guys, I can help you guys out right now. I'll just fast track this for you. Um, do this and do that and do this and do that because I know where it's all going. And you guys are, you know, they're thinking, well, we're just going to do this new credit card thing and it's going to have a chip. I said, yeah, forget that. Just put it under the right hand and the forehead right now yeah, because that's where it's going. And it's like, I already know the game plan. And, and you're right. They start saying those things. Um, and you're like, they're repeating the Bible. They didn't even know it. It's like when Iran goes, we're going to wipe them out from being a people. I said, Psalm 83. You're, you guys are saying the same words. It's in scripture. It's crazy. But that's what you, that's the privilege we get by knowing the scriptures is you know where this is going. And I mean, they're so blind. They're just following it right in line. I want to say, why don't you just start with 666 and just go go for it, man. Just put it on everybody. Um, anywho, let's, let me show you what the chart shows on page 9, and then we'll end on here. I know this gets complicated a little bit, and it gets fuzzy. Bottom of page 9, here's the summary. And combination of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Like I said, it's a mosaic. So Daniel 2, he gives you that information. 
Daniel 7 gives you that information, but then you combine the two, and here's the program that you get. Obviously, the, on, on page 9, the letter B, Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persia, Hellenistic, United Four Stage. Then you jump to the Fourth Empire, turn your page, page 10. And there's the lineup. United Stage. That was in John's day. That's in Jesus' day. Two-division stage. I'm going to talk about this next week. We're currently in the two-division stage. The legs of the metallic man. East and west. I'm going to explain where it's centered in the west and where it's centered in the east. But right now we're in the two-division stage. That's where we are at. That will give way then to a one-world government stage that we saw tonight. That gives way to a ten-division stage that will function in the tribulation at least to the midpoint. Maybe not even that far. And then you go into an Antichrist stage where he disarms three of them, seven submit, he becomes an eighth, and he rules that last empire, which is called the Antichrist empire, the beast empire, until the second coming, and then you have Messiah's coming. So that's what you get out of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 when you combine the two. And there's one more key element, and we can't get to it. John introduces more. And John adds more into this in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. We'll study that next week. And you get a full picture of what the beast empire is really going to look like, what it's going to do, how it's going to function, and where it comes from. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoy this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.